<laughs> Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth and to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Now, with your Bible still open to the Gospel of Luke, turn to chapter 1. Turn to chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the end of this chapter now. And this morning, I want to give us a gentle reminder of the purpose of Jesus Christ coming. We need to be reminded of this ever so often because our culture and even church culture tends to make his coming solely about us as individuals. And doing this, we remove not only Christ's birth from its historical context, but we also remove it from its biblical context of God's plan for the world. 
And so I want us to look today at the prophecy of Zacharias, which is found in verses 67 through 79 of the first chapter here in the Gospel of Luke. Possibly this is a familiar passage to you. You may have even read it this year during this season. But have you pondered it? Have you slowed down to think about what it actually says? That's what I want us to do here this morning. And so let me read through this prophecy. Verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercies of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the way of peace. So this is Zechariah's prophecy. And as we think about what is contained in these verses, we ask the question, who is this about? Is it about Zacharias? Obviously not. Is it about John the Baptist? No, it's not. This prophecy is about the one who's coming. It is about the Messiah. So look at verse 67 here. We see God's explanation. God's explanation. He's, he's giving an explanation about this miraculous birth that has just occurred with John the Baptist. It says, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Uh, notice, first of all, that God now explains after the event has taken place. He doesn't give the explanation ahead of time. He gives it after. You know, oftentimes we wonder what in the world is God doing? But we need to remember that God's not obligated to explain anything to us. We're obligated to be obedient and to trust God. And oftentimes when things happen, we don't understand their significance in our, even our own life until after it happens. And then we have clarity. This is the same type of thing. So God is, explains what's going on here after he has fulfilled his word in giving Zacharias a son. Because remember, Zacharias has not been able to speak. 
He has not been able to speak since that time when he was in the temple and the angel appeared to him and told him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, were going to have a son. And when Zacharias heard this, what was his response? His response was skepticism. He didn't believe that the Lord was going to do that. And because of that, he was not able to speak until his son John had been born. And now Zacharias confirms that his son's name will be John according to the word that the angel spoke to him. And this is the first thing that he says. This is the first thing that he says here in this prophecy. So God is explaining what's happening after it happens. And as part of this explanation, we see that Zacharias speaks prophecy. Prophecy, the activity of declaring what God has revealed. Uh, remember, prophecy has three identifiable aspects. Number one, it has to be revelation from God. Prophecy cannot just be repeating what has already been said. It has to be revelation from God. Number two, it has to have a predictive element or, or often has a predictive element. This would be foretelling. And then it has a proclamation element, forthtelling. So you have revelation, prediction, and proclamation that all go in to make up this idea of prophecy. And in Zechariah's prophecy, we actually see all three of these elements. And we also note here in this verse, verse 67, that this prophecy was enabled by the special ministry of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit had not yet taken place. That doesn't take place until Acts chapter 2. So it is not normal for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit at the time that Zacharias gives this prophecy. In the Old Testament, what would happen is that the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people. They would call that being filled with the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit's ministry, that filling of that person, God is enabling that person to do a special work, a special ministry for him. And the special work for God here is that Zacharias is announcing what God is about to do, both in the immediate future and in the distant future. And so... God is explaining through this prophecy what is significant about the birth of John the Baptist. But that birth is not going to be the key thing. That birth is only a supporting aspect of what God is doing here. And so we see in verses 68 through 75 the prophecy about the coming and the work of the Messiah. The prophecy about the coming and the work of the Messiah. Notice at the beginning of verse 68 it says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. God is to be praised, we might say. God is to be praised. And then notice immediately following in the rest of verse 68 down through verse 69, 
um, it talks about the things or the reasons why God should be praised. You see in verse 68, it has the word for. That for is telling us that God's getting ready to explain something. So blessed is the Lord God of Israel for or because. Then it says he has, ra- he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So here's the reasons that God should be praised. And we see that there, there are certain verbs, action words that are used here. Visited, redeemed, raised. You'll notice in your English Bible that each of these is in the past tense. Has the letters ED put on the end of the word. Well, the interesting thing about this is that this has not happened yet when Zacharias gives his prophecy. But Zacharias speaks of it as if it has already happened. This is very common in prophecy, where the past tense is used to emphasize the certainty and the expectancy of the fulfillment. It's as if he is saying, you can be certain that God will do these things. In this case, you can be certain that God will visit and redeem his people. He will raise up a horn of salvation. So all this is predictive, even though it occurs in grammar terms in the past tense. Also notice the people of this prophecy. We have already seen Zacharias. He's one of the key figures here, right? He's a key character. Uh, Of course, God, the Lord God of Israel is a key character. Also, the nation of Israel is a key character. It says his people, his people, God's people. This is talking about the nation of Israel. And we see that down throughout this entire passage. We also see that John the Baptist is mentioned, not by name, but by reference in verse 76. It says, and you child. Zacharias is talking to his son. So John the Baptist is mentioned. But out of all these characters that we see here, the key one is the coming one. The Messiah. And our verse here that we have, verse 69, he is the horn of salvation that is mentioned here. So this prophecy places the coming of the Messiah in the context of what God is doing for his people, the Jews, his chosen people. And notice the activity here, the activity of the prophecy. This is what God's going to do. This is what God is going to perform. It says here in verse 68, he has visited or he will visit. He redeemed. He raised up a horn. When it talks about the Lord visiting his people, you know, when God visits his people, it can be either for good or ill. It can be either to bless or to curse. In this case, it is to bless. God is going to come to Israel in a very special way, a way that will be a blessing for them. 
But it also says that part of his activity is that he is going to redeem, or literally, to perform redemption. To perform redemption. As a part of this visitation that is a blessing from the Lord, the redemption of the nation of Israel will take place. The idea of redemption here is the freeing of the nation. The liberation of the nation. God is going to do what is necessary to buy back the nation of the Jews. He will perform redemption. So this is going to be a work of God. Not a work of the nation, not a work of man. God is the one who's going to do this. So he is going to visit his people. He is going to redeem his people. And it says he will raise up. He has raised up a horn of salvation. You know, uh, this word horn has the imagery of power, strength, and authority. And it usually refers to a particular person who has power, strength, and authority. The one we see here that is being spoken of, this horn, is the one to whom salvation belongs. It is the one in whom salvation is found. This horn is the one who has the salvation of the Jews. And we see that this horn will come from the house of David, God's servant. Now, when we read this word salvation here, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us, that's the Jews, in the house of his servant David. We need to make sure that we do not add more to this word salvation than is actually there. Uh, and in this context, the word salvation is referring to two things. Number one, it is primarily referring to the deliverance of the nation of Israel. We'll see this in the next few verses. It's, it's talking about national deliverance of the Jews. To save them from the oppression and, and the servitude that they are under. It's also used in a spiritual sense of an individual salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And we will see that in the verses that follow. So the question here in all this is who's the one through whom God is going to do all this? He is going to do all this through this one that's called the horn, who is the coming Messiah. Zechariah's prophecy, even though it is given at the birth of his son, John the Baptist just born. Even though this prophecy is given at the birth of his son, the focus is not the son. The focus is the coming Messiah. And so we see all the things that God is going to do as predicted in the first part of this prophecy. Then as we get down to verse 70, we see that this was all a part of God's plan. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Uh, these activities that were just spoken about, these things that God's doing or going to do, visiting his people, performing redemption, raising up a horn of salvation, these are all things that the prophets of old spoke about. So I want us to be clear here. 
This prophecy is not an indication of God reacting to his people. He's not reacting to his people. This prophecy is an announcement that what God is doing now in this passage has always been part of God's plan. And we see this because the topic of this prophecy is the same topic that the prophets of Israel have always proclaimed. You see here in verse 70, that last phrase in the verse, who have been since the world began. That's kind of a loose translation uh, for the phrase from eternity or from forever. And the point being that all the prophets from the first to the last have had as their topic how God would visit his people with blessing, how God would perform redemption for them, and how God would raise up this one who is spoken about here as the horn and whom they will find their salvation. All the prophets have spoken about this. So the point that God is emphasizing, what Zacharias is saying now in his prophecy is that God has revealed this in the Old Testament. He has already revealed everything he's going to say in the Old Testament. The difference is Zacharias is a little bit more specific. And so what was it exactly, what was it exactly that these Old Testament prophets said? What was their message? We find it in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. Literally, literally it says here, let me connect verse 71 or 70 and 71 together. As he spoke, as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from eternity, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those hating us. So here's the message of the prophets. Here's the message of Zacharias. Salvation from our enemies and those hating us. Salvation from the enemies of the nation of Israel and those hating Israel. This salvation here is talking about physical, political, Salvation. It's not referring to spiritual salvation, but rather the fact that when the Messiah comes, there is the expectation that he will deliver them from their enemies and those who hate them. But the one thing that the Jews in Jesus' day, and even today, the one thing they miss is that in order to fulfill That aspect of this prophecy, the Messiah, must be trusted and embraced by the nation. Their embracing of him, their trusting him, comes first. And then their deliverance from their enemies comes second. They missed that. Why did the Jews reject Jesus when he came, when it was so obvious he fulfilled all these prophecies? Because they wanted the political deliverance. They were not interested in the spiritual deliverance. They thought they were already good with God 
because they were Jews. They were Jews. We see this same thing in the Western world, and particularly in the United States today, but it happens in other places where people believe, I'm an American, that means I'm a Christian, that means I'm good with God. Well, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. That is not what it means. It does not mean you're good with God just because you were born in the United States of America. Your relationship with God is based on trusting God, not where you were born and not which people you belong to. This is the mistake that the Jews were making in Jesus' day and people still make today. But this is God's message in the prophets, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those hating us. And as we move down in our text to verses 72 through 75, we see God's purpose. Um, what's the purpose of this message? What's, what's this message talking about? What's the purpose or results of what God is doing in this message of salvation, this message of deliverance of the nation of Israel? It says to perform mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness, righteousness before him all the days of our life. So there's three purposes or three results connected to this message that we find in verse 71. And it's these three things here that in particular we find throughout the Old Testament prophets. We find it all over the place. Notice the first one in verse 72. To perform mercy. To do mercy. To act with mercy among our fathers, among the Jewish people. The prophets predicted that God would one day perform an extraordinary act of mercy among the Jews. That God is a merciful God, a long-suffering God. You know, in the Jewish world, that's how God is understood. When you talk about who is God, merciful, long-suffering. That's what they think about. Merciful, long-suffering, and, and that long-suffering has all sorts of things added into it, like his covenant faithfulness and those types of things. But this is who God is. He is a merciful God. Secondly, we see here, the second thing is at the end of verse 72, and it runs down into verse 73. It says, and to remember his holy covenant. Now, what covenant? There's multiple covenants in the Bible. What covenant is he talking about here in this prophecy? Verse 73 tells us, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So part of the message of the prophets that's wrapped up in this salvation from our enemies in the hands of all those who hate us is that God is going to remember and fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. All the prophets, all the prophets 
connect their predictions about the coming Messiah to God keeping his promise to Abraham. All the prophets. The Abrahamic covenant, that's what we call this promise. This oath that God made to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant is the foundation for all of God's work with Israel, including sending the Messiah. That point cannot be overemphasized or overstated. Everything that God is doing with the nation of Israel, what he has done with the nation of Israel, and what he will do with the nation of Israel is based in the Abrahamic covenant. God's work, even in the church today, and the church is not Israel, okay? We are not Israel. We are not the nation of Israel. We are the church, the body of Christ. God's work today in the church is based upon the promise that he made to Abraham. It's based in that. This is inescapable. This is what the Bible says as we read it. If you want to know what God is doing and why he's doing it, I would suggest that the first place you go is the Abrahamic covenant and think in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. What is God doing today? Go to the Abrahamic covenant and start there. If you start there, you will get a clear picture of what God is doing not only today, but what he'll be doing in the future as well. So God is going to act with mercy. That's part of the message of the prophets That's part of this message that we see here with Zacharias' prophecy. God is going to act mercifully, and God is going to remember the promise he made to Abraham. He will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Thirdly and finally, about this, the results here of this message, or these points connected to this message, says to, let me just read it from the text and not my notes. Verse 74, to grant us or give to us, to the Jews, that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So here, this, this is the third thing that was in the message of the prophets, that it was the Jews' privilege to serve God. It was their privilege to serve God. This special service to God denotes a special relationship, a relationship that no other people have. Even we as the church do not have this same relationship that the nation of Israel has to God. This is a special thing that is only for the Jews. And the ultimate expression of this service will come after the Jews have been delivered from their enemies. And in our thinking, that's forward. That's forward. That's in the future. And their attitude, their attitude will be one of complete devotion and absolute obedience. It says about this service that they will be able to serve God without fear because they won't have enemies anymore. Their enemies will be defeated. And they will serve him with an attitude, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness. Absolute devotion. The word 
holiness here is not our typical word. It's the idea of pious devotion. So absolute devotion, absolute loyalty to the Lord, and righteousness. Absolute obedience to what the Lord has said. And they will serve before him, before him, in front of him, all the days of our life. All the days of our life. This is the privilege that the Jews have. Now, we know from our history, our Bible history, that this is not, this service to God was not how the Jews served God. As we've been studying the kings of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, one of the things that we have noticed is not only was the kingdom of Israel divided into north and south, but we have also noticed that the people's devotion to God was divided. Sometimes they would serve God. Sometimes they would serve false gods. Sometimes they would serve both God and false gods at the same time. They would go this place to worship God, and then they would turn around and go over here to worship false gods. Their devotion was divided. Here we see there will be a time when they will be totally devoted to God. Now, as we see this message of the prophets, that there's going to be this deliverance, and it's talking about national, physical, political deliverance of the nation of Israel from their enemies and those who hate them. We see also in verses 76 down through 79 that this is a prophecy of preparation. It's a prophecy of preparation. And as part of this preparation, we will not only see the ministry of John the Baptist, but we will see the ministry of the hearts of the people being changed. So let's look at this. We see immediately that the person who begins this ministry is John the Baptist. It says, and you, child. This is Zacharias referring to his son, John the Baptist. The Baptist is a name that we've added to it. John the Baptizer, that, that's not his last name. Zacharias' last name wasn't Baptist. Um, so Zacharias' son here is John the Baptist. And, and while he's still a baby, this prophecy is about his coming role in the ministry of the Messiah. So look at his title. So he says, and you, child, will be called. This will be your title, John, the prophet of the highest. In other words, that's just another way to say the prophet of God. Anytime you see that word highest in your Bible, 98% of the time is talking about a direct reference to God, whether it's says it or not, when it says highest, it's talking uh, almost always of direct reference to God. So John's going to be a prophet of the highest. And what do prophets do? They talk about things that are coming. They announce, make announcements about things that are coming. And this is what John's going to do. And so we see his task it says, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. So the task of John the Baptist as a prophet of the highest is to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
So how's he going to do this? He will proclaim or he will proceed before the face of the Lord. He goes first. He comes first and the Messiah will follow after him. His task is to prepare the way for the Lord, to get things ready for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare the hearts of the Jews so that when the Messiah appears, they are ready. They're starting, we start to see a little slight shift from national deliverance to spiritual salvation right here. But this is the task of John the Baptist, is to prepare the way for the Lord. And how does he do this? How does John, how is John going to prepare the way for the Lord? Verses 77 through 78. It says here, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Knowledge of salvation to his people. What people is that? That's the Jewish people, the Lord's people. How will this salvation happen? How will this salvation that's being talked about happen, this knowledge of salvation? Look at the second part of verse 77. By the remission of their sins, the forgiveness of sins. That's how it will happen. Forgiveness of sins. Slight shift here from national deliverance to individual spiritual deliverance. It's very subtle, but there's a change taking place here. Where does this salvation, the forgiveness of sins, come from? Look at verse 78. It comes through the tender mercy of our God, the God of Israel. That's where it comes from. God's the one who provides this salvation, this spiritual salvation that is now being spoken of. And how will the tender mercy of God for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, come to the Jews? Look at the second part of verse 78. How will it come? With which the day spring from on high has visited us. Let me give you a slightly different rendering there, with which the sunrise from on high, remember this is the same word, on high is the same word as the highest that we saw in verse 76, same word, from heaven, from God, has visited us. So that's this in the New King James here, this word day spring, this is the word for the east, okay? Now, what comes up in the east? Sun, sunrise. What do we call the sunrise? Call it the dawn. The dawn is the new light of the day, right? It's the new light of the day. What does it say at the beginning of verse 79? To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So it is the tender mercies of God that are enacted so that this new light from the heavens, this new light from God himself is going to visit 
his people. So it is the light who will visit his people. Now, you might notice in verse 79, the first part of the verse, uh, very familiar words because these are words that come from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 where it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. We see this exact same type of language in John chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, This man came for a witness. Talking about John the Baptist. This man came for a witness. To bear witness of the light. But John includes another phrase. He says, This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, so that all through him might believe. Now we see how belief is connected to this light coming and how belief is connected to the spiritual individual salvation of the Jews and the national salvation of the nation. So when the Messiah comes, this new light from heaven, this new light from God, he's going to give light and it also says at the end of 79, he is going to guide the nation in peace. The Messiah will lead the nation of Israel to completeness. That's peace. Completeness, wholeness, restoration. The Messiah will restore the nation. So here in verse 79, the last verse of the prophecy, Zacharias in this prophecy sums up what the salvation of the Jews is. It involves their spiritual salvation the receiving of forgiveness of sins through trusting in their Messiah as their Savior and the national restoration of the nation of Israel. The coming Messiah had two distinct yet inseparable and intertwined purposes. So when you think about Jesus coming as a baby, we need to remember this is a Jewish baby. This is a Jewish baby that's coming as the Messiah of the Jews. His primary purpose in coming is for the nation of Israel. And there's two distinct purposes in his coming. To deliver and restore the, nation, the kingdom of Israel and to provide for the spiritual salvation of all those who believe. So this event that is being prophesied here, this event of the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, is an intensely Jewish thing. And it's improper. And it is wrong for us to not include that in our Christmas celebration. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came. And we need to acknowledge and recognize that. And there's two components of the Messiah's offer when he came. Spiritual salvation to the Jews and physical and political deliverance. The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. It, that was a package deal. They go together. 
You can't have one and have the other. They both come together, a package deal. In fact, all of the prophets and even the Apostle Paul himself tell us that the spiritual salvation of the Jews, when they accept the Messiah, this leads to their national restoration. And so in this intensely Jewish context, where they're talking about the Messiah, the Jew, a Jew coming, how do we as Gentiles fit in there? Are we in this passage? How do we fit in to this, what God is doing? Don't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 says this. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you, talking about the coming Messiah, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. So God the Father tells God the Son, that's, it's just too small a thing for you to be the one who's going to restore the nation of Israel. That's, that's too small of a thing for who you are and what you can do. So in the second half of Isaiah 49.6, it says this, I, God the Father, will also give you, God the Son, the Messiah, as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation, my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's how we as Gentiles fit in to what God is doing. That's how we fit in to the account of the Messiah. The Messiah did not come just to save and restore Israel, although that is the primary reason. But that was too small of a thing. And so the Father says, you will also be a light to the Gentile, salvation to the ends of the earth, and that's how we fit in. And that's, this is why Paul says, or Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the, who? Jew first, and also for the Greek. For everyone, but for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Paul goes on in one of the most powerful passages about the future salvation and restoration of the kingdom of Israel and says in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes this, And I say then, have they, talking about the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So God is doing a work in the Jews. And as a part of that, he is using Gentiles and the salvation he's given to Gentiles to provoke the Jews, or the Jews to jealousy. It says in verse 12, now, if their fall, if the Jews' fall is riches for the world, salvation has come to the world because of the Jews. 
and their Jews, failure, riches for Gentiles, how much more their fullness. All the spiritual benefits we have as Gentiles are wrapped up in the Jews. And Paul says, if their stumbling and fall provides a blessing to the Gentiles, how much more of a blessing will the Gentiles receive when the Jews come into their fullness? In other words, you as Gentiles think you're blessed now. Wait until the Jews come into their fullness, and then you will really see what blessing is about. Paul concludes Romans chapter 11. He concludes this chapter with these words. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's talking about the new covenant that God has established with the Jews. Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, God's choice of the Jews as his chosen people, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will not go back on his word. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now obtain mercy uh, obtain mercy through their dis disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, so that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first, uh, first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Our salvation as Gentiles is totally and completely wrapped up in what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do with the Jews. Some might say the Jews have rejected their Messiah, and so God's changed his plans. But God's plans are irrevocable. We just read that. They are irrevocable. God does not go back on his word. He made a promise to Abraham he made a promise to Isaac, a promise to Jacob, a promise to their descendants, and he will fulfill it. The scriptures are clear. God still has a plan for Israel. And one day, the Messiah will return. He will come again. This Jewish man. And he's coming to save the nation of Israel. 
But the same blessing that they have in spiritual salvation is the blessing that he is offering to us. And if you trust him, he will forgive your sins. He will redeem you. He will make you new. You are set free from the bondage of sin. And we can take that to the bank. Not because of anything you or anything I have done, but because God's reputation is on the line. Do you realize that? If God says, trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he changes his mind, he ruins his reputation. God's reputation is on the line. He will do what he says he will do. And he says, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I will save you. God can be trusted. Put your trust in him today. He does what he says he will do. And he sent his Messiah to come into the world. So one day he would die on the cross for the sins, not just of the Jews, but for the sins of all men. And he says, whoever trusts in him has everlasting life. He also says, one day, the Messiah will come again. Won't you stand with me as we close in prayer? After we pray, uh, we'll have our time of uh, fellowship. Father, we give you thanks for this time that we've had this morning in this season of the year where we get to think specifically about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember the Jewishness of this event. Help us to remember that you are the God of Israel, that they are your chosen people. Help us to remember that we receive our spiritual benefits because of what you are doing with your people, the Jews. And so, Father, we not only pray for ourselves, we not only give you thanks for what you have done, but we pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for Jewish people all around the world that as they look at their scriptures, they would understand that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, that he is not, in fact, a Christian Savior. He is a Jewish Savior, and that he came to save them. Father, be pleased with us as we go from this place and get about our business for the rest of the day. We want to exalt you in all that we do say and think. Help us to live lives pleasing to you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Amen.